Did you know that there are over 65 million Gen Xers, yet so few financial advisors focus on Gen X? Why? It's because you aren't rich. Yet. Welcome to the Gen X Money Advisor with Michael Labus, certified financial planner, certified college funding specialist, and founder of Gen X Wealth Partners. This podcast focuses on the specific needs of Gen Xers by a Gen Xer. Get ready to explore topics that will help you get your retirement on track, maximize your dollar towards your child's education, and successfully manage aging parents. We will even sprinkle in a little health and wellness, travel and leisure, and time and stress management. Come and experience the expertise of Michael and his special guests who focus on enhancing the quality of your life today and in the future. Now, on to the show. A financial advisor and a medical doctor are at a cocktail party. No, there's, there's no punchline here, at least not one that I have. But the idea is the same. Everyday people discover what you do and voila, the questions begin. Now, Michael Labus, you are a financial advisor and the host of this podcast. What are the most common questions people ask you when they find out what you do? Thank you for that introduction. Uh, yes, Hello, everybody. Another fun episode of the Gen X Money Advisor. And today I will be answering some of the most frequently asked questions that I get when I'm out and about. And I actually really enjoy it when people ask me questions because one, I'm not a shy advisor. And I don't mind giving a little free advice. And I'm also one to say, if I hear someone talking about finance, I'll also chime in. I love to talk to people about it because it's always an interesting discussion. So I'll jump right into it. One of the most popular questions that I'm getting right now is how can I reduce my student loan payments? It's a very hot topic and I get a lot. And I get a lot from either uh, students who have large balances or, uh, or more specifically students with graduate degrees like doctors, lawyers, or also I get it from younger workers who are still trying to make ends meet, still trying to grapple with how do I pay down this? debt. So the first thing that I would tell people is what, or I would ask them is what type of loan do you have? That's really important. And it's going to basically tell us what your options are. So there's, there's federal loans or there's private loans. And if you have a, a federal loan, you've got a lot, a lot more options than you do for private loans. For your federal loans, one of the most popular ways to reduce your student loan payments would be to enroll into what they call an income-driven repayment plan. Uh, this is a payment plan that is tied to your income. And within that, there are multiple options. Uh, there's the pay, there's the repay, there's an IBR, and each one of these has certain parameters that may or may not benefit you. Uh, you could also consolidate your loan, and this is one that's really easy. And the benefit to this is that it can reduce your fees, and it's just easier to manage. If you've got multiple loans, you might want to reconsolidate. I'm sorry, consolidate those. And especially right now, as rates are going higher, uh, if if it's still feasible to do so, I look at that right now. Does it take um, a lot to do that, Michael? To consolidate? Yeah. Is there a lot of paperwork or anything? I mean, there's some paperwork, but it's not horrible. And the benefit would be to lock in a lower rate. Right. And you know, with a lot of people 
struggling right now. Uh, the, a lot of the loans right now are, are on um, on pause, right? And there's not mm-hmm. being charged anything, but there's still accruing interest. So that's not going to be here forever. So I think you have to be proactive in this in- environment, especially with rates rising. So if you're going to consider consolidation, I'd do it sooner than later. And then lastly, uh, with the federal loans, uh, there's something called public service loan forgiveness. This is pretty cool. So to qualify for that, you first have to be enrolled in a qualifying income-driven repayment plan. That's what we talked about here earlier, the pay, repay, or IBR, as an example. you have It's completed after you make 120 monthly payments. So that's 10 years. And you also have to, you must work at a qualifying government or nonprofit organization. After that time, if those are all met, whatever your loan balance is left will be forgiven. Now, it's forgiven, but it's still considered as a taxable benefit. So you have to take that into consideration as well. But that's very popular for teachers, lawyers, doctors. Uh, They want to incent you to go and work. It uh, it could be in less desirable um, locations, as an example. Basically Um, in underserved areas? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's how they attract talent to those areas. So uh, if you're in one of those fields, you may want to consider that. Uh, So combining all three of these, as an example, would be a great way to reduce your student loan payments. Now, if you've got private loans, so uh, you really, the only option would be to to refinance them. Again, that's in this market with the rates going higher, I don't know what your rate is on your student loan, but if that is something that you're trying to do, I would do it sooner than later because rates are going to keep going up. Quick question. Are, are, are the rates variable on these loans or are they set? You want fixed. They're fixed. They're fixed. Okay. They're fixed. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to, I would never. No, not on a, a student loan. Yeah. I would never move these into, so you're getting, you know, student loan deductions, right? On, on. Uh, I'm sorry, interest deductions on your taxes for your student loans. So if you were to, let's say you uh, play this scenario out, uh, 35-year-old, you're a doctor, you still have a decent amount of student loan debt, you've got a house, you've got some equity in it. I wouldn't necessarily roll my student loan into my home equity line of credit because not only is that probably a variable rate, but now you're not going to get it to deduct any of your student loan interest. So I would, I would keep it in the federal plan. You do not want to take it out of the federal umbrella, so to speak, because then you lose a lot of protections. And the other big girl in the room right now is the potential for student loan forgiveness. And they're not going to forgive your loan if it's a home equity, right? True. So true. So even, even though it might be a lower rate, perhaps you might be losing on some future benefits and tax deductibility that, that, uh, could add a lot of value. So if you're in the federal program, keep it in the federal program. Uh, you can't get into the federal program. You can't take a private loan and say, oh, I want to go into the federal. It doesn't work that way. But I think these strategies can definitely help reduce your student loan payments, especially the income-driven repayment plans. Some of these are based on your discretionary income. So they're going to have a, f- a formula that's going to calculate your discretionary income, and it's going to be Based upon 10% of that, you might, there's another plans that you would, you know, extend your uh, 
payment plan that reduced the monthly payment. So there's lots of options out there. I could spend a lot of time talking about these, but I think I've given you enough to get started. And if you want to you know, go into more depth in this discussion, uh, reach out to me on that. Another question I get, how much should I put down on a house or a car? I get, I get this a lot. Hmm. Uh, it's a very interesting question because it really, okay, the first thing we have to consider is your attitude towards debt, I think. There's a lot of people out there that say, I don't want to have any debt. I, I, I don't carry debt. I pay cash. Okay, that's, that's fine. I think my answer to this question is going to be really come back to your budget, to your budget. So rules of thumb here. Uh, your housing budget should be no more than 28% of your overall budget. And your transportation budget should be no more than 10% of your budget. So we're talking... You know, combined, if you want to do that, 38%. And if you want around 40%. So no more, you should not be spending more than 40% of your income uh, of your monthly budget should not be going towards your uh, housing or car. So when it comes to your house, uh, a couple of questions I have is, uh, where is your down payment going to come from? Is it going to come from uh, your house you already own, you know, via home equity, just transferring that? Is it coming from savings? Or is it coming from investments? And if it's coming from investments, what investments? What's the market doing? Are we selling high? Are we selling low? There's some things to consider there. It's come from savings. How much will you have left? Are you going to have enough in emergency funds to cover your three to six months of budgets, a budget that you want to have in there? Mm -hmm. What interest rate are you going to get? Right? Uh, I just saw yesterday that a 30-year fixed is 6.2%. Okay. That's and that, a, is a, that is a huge jump in the last. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is crazy. Uh, this time last year we were in the uh, two to three range. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they've doubled. Another big thing is people want to avoid what they call private mortgage insurance. So <clears throat> there's a couple ways to do that. One is to pay twenty percent of uh, a down payment down payment on the house. The other one you can actually buy it out. Otherwise, you're going to have a monthly payment added on to your mortgage payment uh, that really is no benefit to you. It's a really a CYA thing for a bank, but you have to pay for that. So it, it, it's, it'll go away. Let's say your house goes up in value. So now that your, your equity house is now 20%, you could petition them to drop the PMI once you get to that level after a a uh, formal appraisal of your house. Um, but that's one of the big reasons why people want 20% because they think, well, I don't have the extra payment. And that makes a lot of sense, but it's not horrible. It's not horrible. It's just, if you can avoid it, I think that that can make some sense. So those are the questions that I would ask. And when I say it comes down to your budget, I don't want you to have too much uh, you know, be house poor, right? So I would look to have your mortgage payment to where you fits comfortably in your budget. And that's really going to dictate to how much I think you should put down. If you have to have a little PMI, it's not the end of the world. If it gets you in the house that you're going to be happy with, if it's, and it's still within your budget, I think that's okay. But I'm not going to advocate any more than, like we said, the 28%. That's just too much house. You're going to be house poor. 
And trust me, the lenders are going to look at that. They look at all these ratios uh, when they're uh, approving you for a loan. Uh, one of them is debt to income. Um, your credit. So, yeah, your credit, obviously. Uh, so there's lots of things that they're looking at. But in terms of what you should be considering, I, I think those are the questions you need to ask yourself to determine how much you want to put down. Don't just think 20% is the answer because it, it probably won't be exactly 20%. How about the car? That's another one. So my opinion on cars is they're horrible investments <laughs> <laughs> unless you buy a classic, right? But we're not talking about classic cars. We're talking about your everyday ride here. Uh, so a couple of questions I have. First one, is it new or used? Then again, what is your interest rate you're going to get on it? And then I think another question that's hard to answer, but one that's important in this is how long do you expect to own the car? Mm. So uh, again, I think it goes back to your budget and a car is a bad investment because it's a depreciating asset. Let's just say that you were driving off a new car today. It's worth $50,000. If you drive that off the lot, just driving off the lot, you've already lost a lot of your value. It's crazy. But if you plan on, I don't know, I'll ask you, Pat, I'll put you on the spot. Uh, do you know the average age of a used car on the road today? I think it's 12 years or so. Yeah, it's like 11 and change. Yeah, yeah very good. No, years. I only know because I just sold my car. It was 12 years old. Actually, I traded it in, but it was 12 years old. I miss it already. Yeah, yeah, sentimental value. I'm sure you had a lot of experiences in that car. But yeah, so it's 11 years. That being said, if you're going to own a car for a long time, so let me ask you this question to follow up on that. Mm -hmm. Did you, uh, in terms of your trade and value, did you think you got a good deal or a bad deal on that? I don't think I did as well as I should have. Yes, I think I got, yeah, the short end of the stick. Okay. Okay. So that's one thing to consider also. How much do you think you'll get out of it? You know, how does the car retain value or does it not? So those are the questions that I would ask. I would be more inclined to put uh, more money down on a car if I am going to own it for a long time. If I'm going to own it for, so I, okay, I'll, I'll use myself as an example. I have a short attention span with cars. <laughs> I actually have leased my cars based upon that. I know that's not the most savvy way to, to, to own a car, but I enjoy the fact that I get a new car with three years and all the maintenance is covered. I never have to worry about any of that. And I get to have a new shiny toy every three years. But my fiance is the opposite of me. She owns her cars for a long time. She buys them and maintains them very well. Mm -hmm. So uh, my advice would be different for different people. But in general, if I'm going to own a car for a long time, I'd be more inclined to put a down payment on it. If I'm owning it for a short amount of time, I'm not. That's just my view on, on down payment on a car. Just think of it. It's a depreciating asset. Okay. So moving on, next question. Uh, I get, and I, I love this question because people assume that I have some type of special secret sauce that, that, I, that only I know, but it is how can I reduce my taxes? Well, Nobody likes everybody, taxes. Everybody wants to know that. Everybody wants to know this, myself included. I'm, I'm asking this question. <laughs> so here's my best stab at this. So prior to the Trump tax laws that were enacted in 2017, there was a lot more people that 
actually itemize their taxes. Uh, today, only about 10% of people itemize their taxes. Why is that? The standard deduction has been increased substantially. It's effectively doubled. So for a, a single individual, it's $12,950. And if you're married, $25,900. So unless you're taking deductions in excess of that, it would not make sense to itemize. That being said, let's, let's, say, let's say that you think you should itemize. How could we reduce your taxes further? Well, there's only so many things that you can actually do. One would be to contribute to your retirement plan. So that could be your IRA, uh, your traditional IRA, a SEP IRA, which is for self-employed individuals, or a 401k, which we're familiar with, or a simple IRA, which is also another employer-sponsored plan. Your IRA, you could put in 6,000 or 7,000 if you're over 50 and a half. A SEP IRA, you could contribute up to 61,000 or 25% of your pay, whichever is less. A 401k, you could put in 20,500 or 27,000 if you're over 50 and a half. And a simple IRA is 13,500. So that would definitely get you on the track. But as you can see, none of those numbers are still over. I'm sorry, unless you do the 401k at 27,000, none of them are over the married deduction. Another avenue to take would be to contribute to a health savings account. I love these things. These are way underutilized, way underutilized. So this is a rhetorical question, but uh, do we think that our health uh, expenses are, are going to be going down in the future? Are you trying to be a stand-up comedian? I uh, no, no, no way. I would fail at that. No. <laughs> uh, but unless you really enjoy sarcastic, dry humor, then maybe you find me funny. But well, that uh, question was definitely sarcastic. Yes, it was very, very sarcastic. Meant to be. They're going to go up. So a health savings account is really cool because you get to take, you put money in tax, pre-tax. It grows for you tax deferred. You can take it out for health. It's tax free. Really cool. It's like a similar taxation to a um, 529 account. Anyways, uh, you can put in for an individual 3650. 4650 if you're over 15 and a half, or 7300 for a family. One more thing to consider with the health savings account is you have to have a high deductible insurance, health insurance plan to be eligible to participate. So when you're doing your open enrollment, make sure you find an HSA eligible insurance plan. Otherwise, if you put in money, you wouldn't be eligible and that would open up a can of worms. So just be, be on the lookout for that, an HSA eligible plan. Another way to save, I'm sorry, to reduce your taxes would be to contribute to a 529 account. That account offers state tax deductions, not federal state tax deductions. And if you're one of those lucky individuals that live in Florida or Tennessee or Nevada that don't have state income tax, there's no additional benefit to you there, but it's still a good investment for your kid. You could make charitable contributions. That's another way. Now that's un unlimited, right? So that could help you get over that threshold. Another way would be to utilize life insurance. And most people think that life insurance is only used for death benefit, right? To leave to your loved ones. Actually, it's a pretty cool tool that you can use it as an investment. You can invest in life insurance to build cash value. 
and uh, that can supplement your other retirement accounts. And if you take the money out for that use, it's you can use it as a, a quote unquote loan to yourself, and that will be tax free income to you. So you're gaining tax deferral and a tax free income source for retirement. Now it's not it's it's potentially reducing future taxation of an asset, right? So it's very. I'll use this with clients who are higher earners who have exhausted their other account options, or it could be someone who just wants to invest in insurance, doesn't want to have uh, you know the, the market exposure. But it's very similar to a Roth IRA. They're very they 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 act very similarly, except with the insurance. There's no there's no maximum that you can put in effectively. Hmm. And and where can we we look to just am I missing deductions? That's another thing, right? Am I missing deductions? Now I haven't. I, I've come to the point in my life, and I realized that I don't know enough about my taxes to do them myself. So I have an accountant that does mine. For years, I used TurboTax, and it was it was sufficient. But the order I've gotten my taxes got more complicated. So if you're still using TurboTax, what I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But you might want to talk to a professional because they're going to help you uncover missed deductions. And you know, I, I there's some common ones we take. You know, the mortgage interest if you have a house, that's a big one. Uh, student loan interest, I talked about that. But I was just putzing around on the internet, and I uncovered an article that had 53 potential deductions. 53. And I'm looking at this list. I was like, wow, yeah, I would not have thought of that one. That's a good one. That okay. sounds to me like a podcast all by itself, Michael. It, it could great. be. I don't want to go down the tax loophole, though. I do not right. want to do that. <laughs> Stay in my lane, they say. <laughs> so the, the, the help is out there to get that. And if you're not, you know, it, it might, a deduction might only add $100 to your deduction. But if you, in the aggregate, if you had 42 of those, maybe in addition to everything else we talked about, maybe that puts you over the threshold, right? So that's really how you want to reduce your taxes. A lot of it's based, a lot of it's based upon um, retirement planning. Unfortunately, uh, the ways to reduce your taxes aren't that exciting, right? It's basically helping you help yourself, but that's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Another question that I get, and this is a really good question to have, but it's, I'm expecting an inheritance. What do I do? And this is a big question because Gen X is going to inherit $30 trillion over the next two decades. $30 trillion. I can't even fathom a trillion, let no. alone $30 trillion. They're saying this is the biggest <clears throat> wealth transfer ever, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's Gen X, it's coming for us. So this is why I'm hearing a lot of chatter about this. And I've had clients who inherited money. I've inherited money. So a lot of this is going to be based upon my own experience here. But then also, you know, how it's impacting others. First thing you want to do, do not rush into anything. Do not rush into anything. Sit on your hands for a second. Take a step back. Second question. Now, in Pennsylvania, as an example, we are one of six states that actually have an inheritance tax, which is unfortunate, we'll say. So if you're one of those states, you're going to want to ask yourself if you're the spouse, a sibling, or a friend. Because each one of those have different taxation uh, linked to them. Uh, a spouse is not taxed. 
Uh, but if you're a sibling or a friend, there's there's level of taxation there to to understand. And obviously, I would always tell you to talk to your accountant to determine what that is. What type of account are you inheriting? It's another question. Is it a 401k? Is it an IRA? Is it an annuity? Is it savings, cash? What are you getting? Again, because there's rules associated with each one of those account types. And it's important to understand what those rules are before you do anything. And as an example, you wouldn't want to inherit an IRA and take out all the money unless you knew exactly what that was going to do to you. That would be a tax nightmare. Same thing potentially with an annuity. Is the annuity in an IRA, which is going to have the same rules as an IRA, or is it a non-qualified annuity, which is uh, fancy language for uh, not an IRA, that's post-tax money? What's how much? If you took the money out of that, there could be a lot of taxes uh, on that as well. Ten percent, no ten percent penalty, but you're going to get hit as ordinary income. Uh, so then there's also savings, which there's no you know, extra t- secret taxes or penalties, but again, the inheritance tax on that, you're going to want to you know, pay that. So understanding first off, what you are inheriting is important. Um, after you've taken stock of that, uh, I would then start to prioritize uh, your options here. And um, a big one, I think for Gen X would be to pay down debt. We have the most debt of any generation, I, I believe, uh, b- mainly because of our house and college. And we're still paying on both of those, right? Millennials, they may not be paying on a house yet. Uh, boomers, they're hopefully have had their student loans paid off and they're probably waning down on paying off their house. So Gen X, we've got the most debt. So getting out of that black hole would be a good thing to consider. Next would be to establish a properly funded emergency fund. Always goes back to your budget, but three to six months of your budget should be in a cash or alternative that's liquid and easily accessible. Another thing, one of my my, uh, driving motivators every morning is to help people get on track. So this is an opportunity for you to catch up on your retirement planning, right? You could max out your IRAs, your 401ks, you could, you know, we talked about with the uh, how to reduce my taxes, you could start a health savings account. You could open up a brokerage account if there is excess funds, but this is an opportunity to catch up. All right, Michael, you said you had five questions. We've uh-huh. gone through four. Uh-huh. What's the fifth one? Uh, the fifth one, this is a fun one. It is, how do I compare with my peers? <laughs> That's a dangerous one. It is. It is. But everybody wants to know, hey, how do I uh, compare to my friends or am I doing okay? So, all right. I I was curious myself. Uh, So I looked into some numbers. Now, it's very difficult to get a a particular number for every given age. So I'm doing broad-based spectrum here. Um, But here are the averages. So for ages 35 to 44, the average retirement savings is $131,950, or the median is $60,000. That's all? Yes. Yes. Oh, my. So if you're 45 to 54, 
the average is 254,720. Median is about 100,000. And what I also looked up was how much debt do people have? And the average debt for Gen X is $135,841. So again, these are averages, medians. Does that really give you paint the picture that I think you want to know? And I don't think it does, but those are the numbers and you can do the math and look at your numbers in your head and say, okay, I'm, I'm above average or I'm below average. But I think the more important question is, do you, have, are you, do you still have the ability to get on track? Mm-hmm. And that's where I can help. That's where I look at your situation and we do the math and we play out the scenarios and we make some tough decisions potentially. But um, if you're Gen X, I still think that you can get on track. And, and you know, that's why I started my company and that's what I specialize in doing is helping you get on track. Uh, so if you saw all those numbers and you feel like you're not on track, uh, I would tell you to reach out to me and we could talk about how to get you on track. But I, I think it's funny that Gen X is so concerned about how we're doing versus our peers. I don't think millennials care about their peers. I don't think they look at that, look at finances that way. But Gen X, we do. It's, it's an interesting dynamic. Well, Michael, how can people reach you? Uh, wow, there's lots of ways you can reach me. I would think the easiest way to reach me would be to shoot me an email to michael at genxwealthpartners.com. You could check out my website and see where I can help you. That would be a great place, uh, which is www.genxwealthpartners.com. Always appreciate a subscription to the podcast where you'll get valuable information like we're talked about today. Um, So there's three ways to, to reach out and learn more about what I do. And as Michael said, follow the podcast, The Gen X Money Advisor, rate, review, and of course, share with friends and family. I'm Patrice Sikora. Thank you for listening to The Gen X Money Advisor podcast. Click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Gen X Wealth Partners. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities offered through Kestra Investment Services, LLC, Kestra IS, member FNRA SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Kestra Advisory Services, LLC, Kestra AS, an affiliate of Kestra IS. Gen X Wealth Partners is not affiliated with Kestra IS or Kestra AS.